This story was recorded on November 17, 2018, at a storytelling festival at the Connecticut Valley Tobacco Museum. The views expressed are those of the storyteller, not the museum. Okay, my name is Dwayne Adams. I live in Bloomfield, Connecticut. I grew up in Windsor, Connecticut, and lived there through high school. So, do you want to tell me how you got involved in tobacco? That's real easy. Um, In the 1950s and 1960s, if you were 14, you were going to work on tobacco. Probably 90%. The question was not, were you going to work on tobacco? The question always was, which farm were you going to work at? Um, There were probably 11 or 12 tobacco farms in the town of Windsor. So you had a pretty good choice. Um, I chose to work for H.F. Brown, Hubble Brown, uh, simply because in seventh grade I became friendly with Merwin Brown, Hubble's youngest son. So when it came time to work, I had to work for Mr. Brown. My problem was, today is the 17th of November. My birthday is on the 19th of November. So I could not work prior to my 14th birthday. So most of my friends went to work at different farms. I was had to tread water, so to speak, for one more summer. But uh, when I was finally eligible, legally able to work, um, I started, I got a job with H.F. Brown. It was a strange situation because I lived in Wilson, Connecticut, which is the southernest part, southernmost part of the town of Windsor. And not too many farmers sent buses, or sometimes they used trucks, that far south. So my morning routine was get dressed, get my lunch, walk up across the Route 5, up uh, Faneuil Street, climb over the fence, and sit on the guardrail of I-91. And my uh, future brother-in-law, Stanton Brown, was living in Hartford at the time, and he would pick me up, and off we would go to work. Of course, it involved stopping in Windsor and picking up a bus, so I was always the first one on the bus. Problem was, in the afternoon, the bus didn't go to Windsor, uh, Wilson. So that meant I had to take the Connecticut Company bus from Windsor Center. And there were days when I was so dirty that the bus wouldn't stop. So I always hoped that there'd be a group that I could stand behind that would force the bus driver to stop. And then I would climb on. He wouldn't be happy with it, though. What year was this when you first started? I'm thinking it was probably 1957, the summer of 1957. So I was probably freshman in high school. Okay. 
So what was the process of getting hired? So you were friends with? I was friends with the owner's youngest son. And back then it was a matter of just calling and saying, I'd like to work at the farm. Um, later on, they actually had uh, students fill out applications in school. Uh, they would go to the guidance teacher and guidance counselor and fill out an application. And it was much more formal. You had to show a birth certificate, a copy of your birth certificate, and your social security number. Um, back then, to get a social security number, you went to Hartford, to the social security office, you showed them your birth certificate, and they wrote it down in a, in a journal, or a big manual, and handed you a card. Now that we've gone to the computer age, it takes about eight weeks. I, I like the old system better. So once you got hired, what were you hired to do? Generally speaking, if you are a male, which I am, you are going to be working in the field. Now, by the end of school time, the netting was all up, the plants had been planted, and the first process was suckering. And that means uh, sitting down in the row and taking off the three bottom leaves. That's what we instructed, were instructed to do, and that's what we continue to do. They were never going to be big enough to be worth anything. Putting some dirt around the base of the plant. And then where the leaf attaches itself to the stalk of the plant, there would be a little sucker. And you would take, just like on a tomato plant, you'd break the suckers out carefully and then just move along. 28 plants every 33 feet. Wow, that's quite a tall order. Yes, it is. And you would they, they would have older high school students as field supervisors. And um, generally speaking, they were understanding they had gone through the process themselves so their their job was to make sure that those of us who were new were doing it properly and carefully I, i've always said my former brother-in-law who passed away last january used to say to the high school students that came in every summer after school got out three things to tell you Number one, be careful with the leaves. Number two, be careful with the leaves. Number three, be very careful with the leaves. And that's that was the type of instruction we got. And as I say, a lot of it was, you know, the actual work was supervised by older high school students or later on college. So you've kind of covered this a little bit, but can you take me through a typical day in your life working in tobacco? Typical day in my life. Well, as I've explained, getting up and, and hitching a ride on I-91, it was a little bit funny because Stanton Brown had a big Mercury station wagon. So I would, I would get used to it. There would be times when people would pull over and ask directions or things like that. But I was always focused on this 
big Mercury station wagon. Well, one day this little Fiat pulled over with its signal light on, and it was Stanton Brown. And uh, he was about 6'5". He wore the car very well. It was a, it was a fit. But uh, no, um, once we got to work, generally speaking, in suckering, you'd be broken up into groups of maybe 10 or 15, and you'd have a straw boss that would be in charge of that group. And it was a matter of starting wherever you left off the day before or starting in a new field if you had finished the field yesterday. And um, you would work until noontime. So from about 7 until noontime, um, there was always a water barrel handy. Um, and back then, they were oak water barrels like we have out in the barn. So it kept the water fairly cool. Nowadays, a lot of farms are using plastic. And after about an hour out at the field, you can make a good cup of tea with it. So it's not as refreshing as it used to be. But at noontime, we had a half hour for lunch. Typical high school boy probably needs about five minutes to eat lunch. And then how to stay out of trouble for 25 minutes. Um, it was generally speaking the Paquanic boys versus the Windsor boys. And then there were days when it was the Wilson boy on one side. And the odds were not good. <laughs> but I was fast. So we would work until 3.30, which would be an eight-hour day, and then head home. If it got really hot, um, and when you're suckering, the plants are not tall. They may be a foot and a half at the most. And so you're not shaded very well. And even though they call it shade tobacco, uh, there's a lot of holes in that netting. It's, it's just there to filter the sun. But uh, there were times when it would get too hot to work and we would be sent home early. Can you talk a little bit about how physically taxing the work was? I think for a young boy, 14 years old, um, sitting down and, and working sitting down um, was interesting in terms of the back. Um, and uh, you probably every now and then wanted to sneak up onto your knees because that gave you a little bit of relief. And then somebody would say, uh, 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 and sit down. <laughs> so I wouldn't say that it, it was physically taxing to start with, suckering. You know, you finished a row, you helped your group finish their rows, and then you went over and everybody got a new row. Um, and that's pretty much how suckering went. Can you think of any stories of significant moments in your time working in tobacco? Oh, God, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, I worked two years. I worked when I was 14 and 15. And I would have to say that I was probably not one of their favorite workers. Um 
my grandmother used to get me up in the morning. And if it was wet, she wouldn't wake me up. And some days, wet meant there was a heavy dew. So there, there were a number of mornings where Mr. Brown drove along 91 and there was no one sitting on the guardrail. But uh, no, the, um, in my younger years, and as a 14 and 15-year-old, um, I guess my biggest problem was being the only one from Wilson. And as I said, yeah, average young man takes five minutes to eat his lunch, and then you have 25 minutes to get into trouble. Um, I can recall one day when we were having lunch, and uh, Mr. Brown had grown some strawberries, and he had a, some beehives brought in to pollinate the strawberries. And one young man decided those were nice things to throw rocks at which was not a nice thing to do and not very smart. So I think most people spent that lunch running a lot because we had some angry bees. Um, most of my story, now bear in mind, I said 14 and 15, and then I could, got to be 16 and I could work in a real grocery store, which was air conditioned and clean. Um, so for the rest of my high school, that's what I did. When I got out of college, I graduated from St. Anselm's College, and I was going to go to UConn for a master's degree, and I was looking for a summer job, and a good friend of mine from back when we were 14 and 15 said, why don't you call Mr. Brown? He said, I have a job there, and we could work together out in the field. And... Um, so I did, and he apparently didn't remember me as a 14 and 15-year-old because he hired me. And um, now Stephen and I were on the supervising part of the field operation. And uh, I think one day Mr. Brown came up and said, we need to irrigate. And... Uh, that was going to be my job for the next, until it rained. And my first week on irrigation, I worked 96 hours. Second week, I was up to 106. And I kept suggesting to Mr. Hubble Brown that if he would give me an afternoon off, I would go home and wash my car, and that would cause it to rain. But he wouldn't buy into that. So I was getting it. I was getting to work about five in the morning, and going home around ten or ten thirty at night. And presumably, you're being paid by the hour for this, right? This would be paid by the hour. Yes. Can you remember how much you were paid for your work? Well, when I was fourteen, it was sixty-one cents an hour. Now that I was supervising, I think we we're up to like two dollars and twenty-five cents an hour which I thought that was pretty good money. Uh, probably the funny thing was Mr. Brown came to me one day and asked me if I would cash some of the paychecks they had given me. And I said, Mr. Brown, 
I'm here at 5 in the morning, and I'm going home at 10 o'clock at night. Number one, where am I going to cash them? And number two, what am I going to do with the money if I do cash them? But I did go home that evening, and on my bureau I had eight weeks' worth of checks. So I signed them, and I got my mother to go cash them. <laughs> How long did you work there as a supervisor? My total time with Mr. Brown was 46 summers. Not that I hated the job or anything like that. No, I, I, <clears throat> it gets into your blood. It really does. Um, my brother Stanton Brown, um, he and his wife would go to Florida in the wintertime. Usually, after they had done all of their bookkeeping things for the for the farm, so by mid January they would go to go to Florida, and they would stay there until uh, mid March. Actually, he started kind of chafing at the bit at beginning of March because he had to get back and get the greenhouses growing and and all of that. To, and uh, it was part of his biological makeup. Um, even after he stopped growing tobacco, the beginning of March, he would start getting antsy and need to get back to Windsor to, I guess, watch the hay grow, because that was what he converted the farm to, a lot of, a lot of growing of hay. And why did he stop growing tobacco? That's a question that probably every, almost every farmer could be asked. Um, he grew primarily shade tobacco. And um, in the latter years, he started growing a little bit of broadleaf as well. Um, one of the things that had happened was the English were the biggest buyers of, of shade tobacco. They bought only the best leaves, and they, were, they bought a lot of it. And um, probably 10 years ago, they came to the farmers and they said, we're not going to tell you not to grow shade tobacco. We are going to tell you we're not going to buy any shade tobacco for about five years. The new management in England discovered that the old management had in their warehouse a seven-year supply of shade leaves. And you do have to have to be aged, but that was kind of above and beyond. So the new management felt, oh, if we have a couple years worth of shade leaves, then we can start buying again. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest markets dried up. Another thing that has happened is shade tobacco is being grown in Costa Rica. And it's being sold as Connecticut seed tobacco. And I'm willing to bet that their environmental standards are probably not on a par with the environmental standards here in Connecticut. 
economy. And I'm willing to bet their wages are not on a par. Um, the last year I worked, and I stopped, this would have been 10 summers ago, in, in March of that year, I was out with my not very friendly American Eskimo puppy, and we would deliver newspapers to some of the older people on the street, taking them out of the tube, put them in a grocery bag, and hang it on their doorknob so they don't have to walk out. Well, one Saturday in March, I found some ice, and um, I went over backwards and put my right arm out to break my fall, and I did. I fractured the elbow. And uh, I had eight weeks in a cast, and then they decided that, oh, you've severed ligaments and tendons, so we have to do surgery, so I had another eight weeks. And I called my brother-in-law, and I said, look, you know, I know you're going more and more into broadleaf, and I don't think you need a one-armed farmer. So I think I've gotten a message that it's time for me to retire. But 10 years ago, just to give you an idea, by bringing in Jamaican workers, the hourly wage was now about $13 an hour. And that meant, obviously, if you're going to pay the Jamaican men $13 an hour, you're going to have to pay any locals at least $13 an hour. I don't think Costa Rica pays anybody $13 an hour. So they can harvest and sell a crop. And given that where they are, they can probably grow more than one crop a year. Mm. So it just it's impossible to compete with that. I think this past summer, I know of two farms that were growing shade tobacco, but they were also growing a lot of broadleaf. And I'm not sure how they're, how they're doing. You know, Connecticut shade has always been kind of the benchmark for quality wrapper tobacco. And uh, whether or not there are still companies that will buy it at a more expensive price than what they can get it from in, in Costa Rica, I don't know. They've tried growing in other areas previously without much success. I think they've smartened up in, down in Costa Rica in that they've hired farmers from Connecticut to go down and kind of oversee it, oversee the process. But even then, it's a different environment, so, I mean. When you reflect back on your years in the tobacco industry in Connecticut, do you, can you see broad changes in your experience? Are there shifts that you noticed, whether it was new kinds of workers coming in or changes in the market? How did it feel from your perspective? Hiring has always been um, a dilemma for the farmers. Uh, my last summer supervising the field crew, I had 65 people, 61 adult males, and four high school age. Those four high school age took up more of my time 
than the other 61 combined. Um, hiring local high school students has just, it's evaporated. They've got soccer camp, softball camp, baseball camp, Boy Scout camp. They're, they are so regimented in terms of how they're going to spend their summer that the idea of working in tobacco, that, like I did, where, oh yes, you're going to work in tobacco because you're 14, that doesn't exist. Very, very few uh, young people. You know, I, I talk to students, I'm a substitute teacher, and I said, well, the last year I worked, they were paying $13 an hour. Oh, I want to work there. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, because it's just, it just not doesn't work out. Um, in terms of the process, um, I started with coal frames uh, where the, the seedlings would be grown just in sterilized dirt uh, under glass frames. And um, I think the first improvement was an irrigation system within that glass frame so you didn't have to remove all the fra frames and drag a hose up and down to water the plants. Now all you had to do was turn a faucet and it would water the plants. Um, I think the next major step that in that process was going from growing it in, in coal frames to growing in greenhouses in trays. And it gave you a much better product because when you're pulling those little plants out of the dirt, sometimes all you get is root. And you could send them out to the field and it was a hot day. They would plant it and you would watch it fall over. And the next morning they would be standing up. But they, they didn't have much of a root system. But by growing it in trays, like we have out in the museum, then you had a nice root ball, and the, the machines that set them, well, not the men actually that are doing the work, but the machine itself opens up the soil, gives it a squirt of water, drops the plant in, and then closes the soil up, which is kind of remarkable. Um, so greenhouses, um, irrigation, I told you I worked on irrigation my first summer out of college, and it meant hauling aluminum pipe. And um, Mr. Brown probably had enough aluminum pipe to do four rows of each eight bins long. And what you would do is you would run two lines, turn those off, turn the next two on, and then go in and drag the pipes out of the muddy rows and reestablish them in, in the next so they would be they would become number five and number six. Um, the last few years he started irrigating under the plants and it's a, a trickle system that that I guess originated in, in Israel and um, what it does is it brings the water right to the roots of the plant so the plant itself doesn't get wet. And uh, that is helpful when, with things like blue mold that, that can destroy a crop because uh, blue mold likes it wet. 
I like to spread when it's wet. So these are irrigating plants under. You can irrigate the field and work in the field at the same time. And instead of aluminum pipes, you have these rubber hoses that are either six inches in diameter or four inches in diameter. And when there's no water in them, they're flat as a pancake. And um, it was, I think it was a, a wonderful system for, you know, irrigating. And I think irrigation, you know, if you look at the history of tobacco in Connecticut, you know, we're talking back in the 1920s, 20,000 acres of tobacco. And then in the 1950s, 9,000 acres of tobacco. Well, that's a big drop. And a lot of it's because of irrigation and fertilizers that actually work. And I will tell you right now, tobacco farmers use a lot of fertilizer. I figured out one summer, if we counted lime, we were using almost a ton of fertilizer to the acre. When we rested the land, Mr. Brown would grow pumpkins. We didn't have to fertilize. The soil was so rich, but it was not rich for tobacco plants because you get nematodes that come in and grow on the roots of the plants. So if you grow too many years in a row, the nematodes will stunt the growth of the plants. But uh, I think that's about it. you know, going from charcoal to cure the tobacco to to propane or natural gas um, is, uh, is a lot easier. You don't have to have somebody there all night with a wheelbarrow and a shovel keeping the, keeping the, the, the pans filled with fresh charcoal. Um, it's still dangerous, but you, know, you can burn down a shed. This... This museum is on what was a farm. It was about a 300-acre tobacco farm. And they had one employee burn down two sheds in one summer. Because they fell asleep? No. He was the wrong person for the job. They had a crew that would come in and set up the gas stoves. And at the end of the main line that was connected to the propane tanks, at the far end... There's an end cap, and his job was to turn the gas on briefly, turn the gas off, just to blow any dirt out of the main line, put the end cap in, then go in, turn the gas on again, and start lighting the stoves. Twice he forgot the end cap. Propane is heavier than air, so it forms this nice lake at that end of the shed. And he's carrying a lighted torch. He survived both times. But in his defense, as I said, wrong person for the job, he was deaf. He could not hear the gas running. Okay. So, wrong person for the job. Probably a very good worker, but not for that job. Okay. And that happens. Do you remember any times when there would be disputes about, from a labor standpoint, like people people feeling they weren't being paid enough? Or <laughs> we had my father used to tell a story that he worked on tobacco and he got twenty five cents a day, 
and they were going to tell a farmer that they wanted 50 cents a day. They said, go home. Um, back in probably the 70s, there was a Hispanic group that wanted the wages for the farm workers. They wanted to organize the farm workers into a union, almost like uh, Cesar Chavez out in California. Uh, it never came to anything. I mean, back then, most of the farm workers were teenagers, and uh, they, they probably didn't understand the Spanish or the, the broken English that because they, several of the kids came to me and said, somebody came to the bus stop this morning, and they wanted us to join an onion. And I said, I think you mean a union. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but it never came to anything. Um, as they say, for the most part, especially, see what happens with the, when you bring in Jamaican workers is the U.S. government and the Jamaican government negotiate. And then they, uh, they, they settle. Okay. There have been times when that hasn't worked and we didn't have any Jamaican workers. But. And by way of a last question, I'm wondering if you just want to reflect on what working in tobacco has meant to you because you spent so many years doing it. I, I looked forward in June to working on tobacco. And I looked forward into September to going back to the classroom. <laughs> in fact, there were many times sitting at uh, Southington High School in the auditorium with all the teachers from Southington, and I was the only happy one there. Okay. Because I was saying, okay, this is almost like being on vacation. Because I have to be here at 7.35 in the morning, but I get to leave at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's a lot shorter than what I had all summer. But on the other hand, come summer, come June, I got to be outside of that little box that I had lived in all during the school year, and I got to be outside in the sun and uh, doing something that I really enjoyed. Okay? And, and as I went on, I, got, you know, I was given more and more responsibilities. But, uh, no, I, I actually look forward to my summers on the farm. And I don't, I don't regret them. I probably had several surgeries because of them, knees replaced, etc. But I don't regret them, don't regret a minute of it.